You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 156. What's up, Mark? Jake, have you downloaded Mojave yet, the Mac OS? I have not. How is it? It is really good. Now, audience, I don't want to hear from the haters. Windows 10 is awesome, right? Jake and I just happen to be Mac guys, right? And then actually all of Oil & Gas Global Network and all of Moto Points Mac as well. But it's a new operating system, and they've improved it a lot. But one of the coolest things is they have this dark function, which doesn't sound like it's very useful, but it's so much easier on the eyes when you're working on it. It's, you really need to move over. But it's a long upgrade. It took the counter first started for how long it's going to take to do the install. It said like 21 minutes. Go, oh, that's not bad. And then it went from 21 minutes to 59 minutes. <laughs> so it took an hour for it to update, but it's, it's really cool. I just remember the old days of like 12 hours for an update. Jeez. Or the old days of when you went to, it never failed. You went to do some PowerPoint presentation from a crowd. That's when your, the Microsoft update would automatically trigger and you couldn't stop it, you know? And speaking of stuff you can't stop, I heard something, Jake. What'd you hear? I heard you and Colin got a new show. Oil and Gas Startup Podcast. So far, the reception's been fantastic. People are loving it. So far, we've, we put out the first five episodes. We've got a whole bunch of five-star reviews. So if you guys are interested in that whole thing, go check it out. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. Let us know what you think. If you run a, a really cool, innovative company, whether it's in tech or whether it's a, a new EMP startup or something like that, and you want to be on the show, just let us know, and we'll see if we can make something happen. And I'll tell you this much, audience, I know I'm partial because of how I'm involved in all this, but I've listened to it and it's really a good show. So even if you're not into the startup space, the conversations Jake and Colin have with the founders of these companies are really fascinating. We get into this, they got into stuff, y'all just recently did one, the guy was talking about all the different uses of drones and y'all took drones to autonomous vehicles, to exoskeletons, to blockchain. I mean, you know, where else you could hear real conversations like that other than Jake and Colin's show. So go check it out. Why are there? Leave them a review. It's the best way to help them support this show. So this is their baby. It still has to grow. If you leave them a review, it helps feed the baby. Speaking of reviews, we got one too. Best podcast in oil and gas by Baby Story. <laughs> That's a, no, Babsatory. Sorry, not Baby. Babsatory. I like Baby Story better though. New to podcast and trying to learn more about oil and gas and couldn't appreciate more the way that Mark and Jake approach the industry. Looking forward to their growth. Startup podcast coming soon. Count me in. That's awesome. So if you'd like to get your review and a big shout out, just like I gave Baba's story, leave us a review. Leave Jake and Colin a review. Shoot, go to all the podcasts we have and leave a review. We'd appreciate that. Actually, we should give a prize to somebody that leaves reviews for all of our podcasts in the same day. Let's talk about that. Maybe next show we'll figure out where we're going to go with that. But anyway, today's first Friday Q&A. We got questions. Jake, what's the first question? First question is from Travis, who's a field engineer trainee at Schlumberger. He writes, hey, Jake, are you still looking for crowdfunding for WellHub? The short answer is no, not crowdfunding. Would I entertain investments? Yes, but are we actively looking? No, we are in the implementation process with the first few clients. And so we are actually kind of entertaining the idea of bootstrapping from cash flow. So we'll reevaluate in probably early Q1 of next year and see if we want to take a larger investment. But as of right now, it's not really on the uh, the docket. I tell you what, though, if Travis works for Schlumberger and he's a field engineer trainee, it might be somebody good for you to know. You and Travis might want to talk, right? Because WellHub at some point in the future may need some field engineers. They, we might. You never know. Maybe he could help you and Colin with your operating company, too. <laughs> <laughs> we got a place for everybody. 
<laughs> come one, come all. We got a company for you somewhere. All right, next is from Gareth. He's the head of maintenance, planning, and turnaround at, I think it's Oryx. I think that's how you say it. Here I say, Mark and Jake. First off, great podcast. It's very informative. I'm hooked. Keep it coming. I've been in oil and gas 20 years in maintenance with Tesco, Chevron, and Valero in the UK, but now in Qatar. Question, I'm in the GTL business. Is that Jim Tan Laundry business? I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Our primary business is high-quality diesel with a few other side streams. Where do you guys see the diesel market in the next five to 10 years with the anti-diesel sentiment in the UK and the EU? I'm not sure if the US has future plans. Let's answer that one first. He's got a few more questions. Yeah, so the diesel market, and there's going to be small areas where there's a decline and there's an increase like any other market. But overall, if we're looking out over the next 20 years, the demand for diesel globally is just going to grow. Diesel's the fuel of choice for a lot of things, for any place you need a, a ton of power, right? Because diesel has a more a potential energy in it than gasoline does. And so, and you're even seeing fleets. So it's funny about the anti-diesel movement in Europe because just about the entire fleet, both commercial and private vehicles now run on diesel to the point where they refinery their own refineries can't produce enough diesel, so they have to buy ours because the anti-oil and gas people won't let the refineries retrofit. And yet their refineries are still producing gasoline, which they don't have a need for as much. So they sell the gasoline to us for pennies on the dollar. So I kind of hope that anti-oil and gas stuff in Europe keeps happening because it just benefits the U.S. But the demand's going to keep growing for diesel, and, and that will almost never stop. At some point, and this is we're probably at least 50 years away from that, at some point, you're going to see diesel electric become much more mainstream. You may not know this audience, but when you see a bulldozer out there or a front end loader or a, a train locomotive, there's not actually internal combustion engine moving that thing. It's actually an electric motor that moves it, but then they have a diesel generator supply the electricity to the motor. And it works because there's a, it eliminates the need for transmissions. You get 100% torque at one RPM. There's reason for it. And you can see more and more of that. But diesel's not going anywhere, Garth. I, I, I wouldn't be worried about that whatsoever. And yes, the anti-oil and gas movement may at a high level influence that a little bit from a political point of view. But bottom line is I don't care what you do. You know, you need roads built. You need stuff moved on train tracks. You need stuff moved in super tankers. You need to get to work. Diesel's not going anywhere. So, so nothing for you to even be worried about. Yep. I a hundred percent agree. All right. Next is a question from Steven. who is a facilities engineer at Ultimates resources. He writes, Mark and Jake love the show. My question is about data. My company generates a lot of it as an, as an engineer. I'm always trying to think of ways to sift through the data to pull out meaningful trends that will help us run our business more efficiently. Trouble is the data is often being gathered and stored by discrete databases used by different work groups instead of one central database. Do you have any advice on how to any good data mining software they can pull from different databases simultaneously? So, Stephen, if you're not familiar, that's exactly what WellHub does. We've been working on this for, I mean, WellHub's been around for a little over two years, but this has kind of been my mission over the last five years between my last company and now WellHub. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, like the problem today is that engineers just like yourself are spending a significant amount of time. We've seen, we've done some studies and the, and the numbers show anywhere between 80 to 85% of your time is spent on data aggregation and preparation. And then, like you mentioned, you want to be able to pull meaningful trends out of that data. So we've also seen that about 97% of the data today that EMPs collect is never actually used. And so it would be great to go and say, hey, we have all these big data and machine learning tools and we can pull all these you know, valuable insights out, but you can't do that until your data is in one a centralized place where you have access to this information. And then you have to have high quality information within that. So you have to have quality control of the actual data. And so that's what we do. So what I'll do is I'll actually uh, shoot you a message uh, and we can chat some more about that as well. 
how cool a service is this podcast when we're actually going to reach out to you and talk about exactly what you need? Yeah. <laughs> okay, up next, we have one from, I think it's a GAM, a university student at University of Toronto. He writes, I've been investing for the last two years, and the desire of owning an oil and gas service business usually occurs to me on a regular basis along with mining. The business would hopefully allow me to leverage my time and use the proceeds toward my investments. Would you be able to give me some insight into what you can do with a small to medium investment? Thank you. So I actually messaged him and wanted to get some clarification on kind of where he was at before I could actually properly answer this. And so a small to medium investment was anywhere from, you know, Ten to maybe fifteen thousand dollars, and so it's really hard to break in any kind of oil and gas service business with investment like that. And so that was kind of the advice that I gave to him. He's also a complete industry outsider. He said he doesn't have a whole lot of oil and gas experience, but he just has a desire to be in that. And so he wasn't sure if he should double down on you know his experience with you know stock trading or if he should actually get into the oil business. And I was like, man, if you want to get in the oil business, you got to dive like head first. Running a business in general, I think, is particularly difficult depending on what the nature of what your business is. But you know, doing so in oil and gas, especially being an outsider, you know, having been in that position at one point in time, it's very, very difficult. And so if you don't have a significant amount of capital to kind of throw at something, it's damn near impossible sometimes. I would say it's impossible. Without the experience, I, you know, the old modal point used to help companies sell their products or service to oil and gas. And we had a lot of big technology companies outside of oil and gas. And without help, they just fail. Even very large companies with robust sales and marketing teams that are very successful in other verticals, they just fail when they come here. Now, I've seen it with my own two eyes. And you either need experience or you need the right help. And I know this, this show's starting to sound like a plug for Jake and Colin, but if a company out there needs that help, you and Colin have a consulting company. I'll do exactly that, right? You help companies that don't understand the industry, understand how they fit in this industry and who will buy their stuff and why. So if you're in that place, reach out to Jake and Colin again for that. The other thing I would say is once he got, the first thing I think of is once he got some experience or if he could find a partner with the experience, man, come to West Texas, open a sand mine, right? That combines your wanting to invest in mining and in oil and gas and a service company. And there's going to be a demand for sand in this state for the next 5,000 years, you know? And so, you know, that would be a place I would look into, but Jake's right without either if you get a partner with a lot of experience or you spend the time, you know, in the industry to get that experience yourself, don't, don't invest in this industry unless you know it. Let's say, I mean, this is not a question, but it's kind of diving what you just said about the sand mine thing. So I actually had a conversation with a private equity firm out of Mexico earlier this week. They kind of found us through the podcast and they were like, Hey, we're looking just for opportunities within the oil space. We've been in mining forever. We've been in real estate forever. So we were kind of just running through just different things that they would want to invest in. And one of the things they kept bringing up was a sand mine. And so Obviously, knowing that there's been about 25 to, I mean, last time I checked, it's about 25, could be as high as 40 now. Sand mines have opened in West Texas alone. And then, especially after going to ATCE, I mean, like, it seemed like half the books or half the booths were like new sand mines. And so, do you think that market is now oversaturated or do you feel like we have a ton of room for growth? No, so I don't think it's oversaturated at all. I think there's two things going on. You're seeing the old sand mines do business the old way, where logistics was something that they didn't worry about. They didn't care if the mine was 50 you know, miles away from the job site. And I'm seeing some of these new people come in that make logistics everything, which is what Sam Walton got right the first time. A lot of people don't understand this. Walmart and Sam's was successful, not because Sam Walton saw the value in having retail stores. That was just the end game, right? He saw the value in removing the middleman, the distributors, and becoming the distributor himself. Sam Walton basically built a logistics company is what he built, and he's very good at it. And I think if you could take that same use of technology and processes and apply it to something as old-fashioned as sand mining, I think you could pull way ahead. So I still think there's a ton, uh, that's a pun intended, of potential in the sand mining business. <laughs> All right, you heard it here first. Everybody go start a sand mine. <laughs> 
All right, up next, we have a question from Jeff. He's a director of everything. Revolution Resources. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I take it you guys are probably a startup, so I get it. You wear many hats. He's got a two-part question, so we'll kind of break this down. He prefaces it by saying, I have a pretty extensive experience using data to bring insights to life within the oil and gas realm. One thing I think most outsiders miss referring to Silicon Valley is that our animal isn't standard. What I mean is manufacturing, app development, retail, et cetera, can all be measured easily. The industries have standard definitions and less changing pieces. Using data to gain insight on oil is much harder than most other industries because of that. Due to innovative competition, we lack a lot of standardization across our data, and we've seen that industry-wide. So part one, do you ever see data definitions becoming more standard? PPDM is trying, but not really succeeding. Or do you think the nature of oil and gas will always limit the collaboration standard definitions required for big data to be as beneficial as it could? So to answer this part, obviously, you know, kind of being in that data space, I was telling Mark before we got on the microphone that, you know, PPDM is definitely trying. There are a lot of companies who actually implement the PPDM standard. For those who are not familiar with the PPDM standard, you can go look it up. It's the petroleum, I can't remember what PPDM actually stands for. It's petroleum something. Professional Petroleum Data Management. Yep. Speaking of PBDM, Jake, in two weeks, I'll be in Calgary, Canada, speaking to the PBDM group up there. So it's funny how this kind of just rolled in together. This was not intentional. They had me hired to speak a long time before somebody wrote this question. Anyway, keep going. So the PPDM model, uh, one of their, the big topics that they like to talk about a lot is, you know, what is the definition of a well? Is it the well bore? Is it a completion? Is it various zones? So on and so forth, because there is no standardization in something as simple as that. And that's a good example of a million different use cases of whether we're lacking in standardization. So I think PPDM has definitely been trying, but I definitely think that, you know, getting to getting a bunch of parties to actually agree that this is the best model, you know, they're, like you said, this is an extremely complex industry and there are certain companies that operate just slightly different. There's different as you know, they could be, I don't know, they could operate in a certain basin where there's something that is not value that they need is not built into the PPDM model. So just to kind of give you some insight on on the well hub side, we kind of have our well hub data model, which is constantly evolving. It's the nature of what we do. And when we use MongoDB, so it's a non-relational database, so it's a little bit more flexible than what you would you see with like a, you know, a SQL database or, you know, something of that nature that you normally see in oil and gas. But we also do have it to where we can kind of mold to the PPDM model as well if we need to for a certain client. So I think it's something that you have to be able to kind of tackle. I think it's one of the biggest challenges in what we do, figuring out what the data model actually is going to be. So I guess we'll kind of see. Yeah, I think you have to be kind of flexible, at least in, in my shoes, you have to kind of be flexible to do both. Second part of your question is there seems to be a huge disconnect in most companies between the IT departments and the needs of the operations team. Do you see the same disconnect? And if so, what are some recommendations? Yes, 100%. And I think the issue becomes is you get these IT departments who think that they are better than the operations teams. And I think they've, they feel like they maybe they get away with having a little bit too much power. IT is a enablement department, they shouldn't be the go-to department. They should be the ones actually making the business decisions as to what systems are actually being utilized. IT should be there in a consulting capacity to come in and say, hey, this meets all of our requirements on the security side, yada, yada, yada. Hey, this plugs into our existing systems and check that box. And I think a lot of people kind of forget that too. So I've been in th at that intersection for 20 years. I I've always sold technology to oil and gas. I've always had an interface with IT. The problem is IT. So IT Number one, doesn't typically, and especially in a large company, doesn't even know what the business does. So the enterprise architect at, you know, Super Major X doesn't really know what Super Major X does. They know routers and switches and software and cybersecurity, 
they don't know what, you know, they've probably never been offshore themselves. And so IT and oil and gas keeps wanting to be brought to the table as a business partner, but until they understand the business, the business doesn't want them. The flip side of it is the business doesn't really like IT and oil and gas. Why? Because most IT organizations use a chargeback model. And so what happens is, you know, the business says, okay, we need an ERP system in place. Let's, uh, you know, we'll give it the role to SAP. IT then supervises the SAP installation. It inevitably runs over budget, over time, and then the business has to try to use it and they can't, right? And nothing against SAP. What I'm saying is that if you're in a organization where you use a chargeback model, where you fund your unit by charging the rest of the business, you need to be really good instead of being something that will slow the business down or not be, not be helpful to the business. That's why you're seeing so much outsourced, the business outsourcing so much to other technology groups is they don't like their own internal IT groups. And I put the shoes on that on directly on it to the cios and oil and gas learn the business have your people know the business have your it project managers shadow the project managers building a pipeline see what that guy does if you do that i promise you will be you'll be brought to the business as a a business partner i've seen a couple of oil and gas companies do that very well and inevitably they got bought by somebody else and everything got pushed back to the old ways of doing business i am actually starting to see some kind of middle area where you have people that understand IT, but then also understand the business. They turned a coin, a phrase called business analyst, which is basically the person that translates between the business and IT. That's a start in the right direction. But this is definitely a cultural thing brought on, I believe, by IT. I 100% agree. I think a lot of, to kind of obviously switch gears on like the startup side, I see a lot of startups that are targeting specifically on the sales side, selling directly to the IT department. Listen, guys, not the way to do it. Go to the business side. It's going to be coming out of the business budget. It's not the IT budget. Yeah. And IT never has a discretionary spend. Every year they're asked to do more or less from a budget. So if they want to buy something new, they have to go ask the business for it. And they're horrible at explaining why. And quite frankly, if you have a technology that's making a big difference in oil and gas, you're probably threatening some people's jobs in IT and they don't want that either. Right. So Jake is a hundred percent right. You always go talk to the business. If you have a technology solution, not to the IT guys. 100%. We're going to get a bunch of IT hate mail watch. <laughs> Next question is from Colby. He's a treasurer at John Oates Co. He said, first, let me thank you for doing an amazing job with this podcast. I'm new to the world of podcast, and this show is one of the first I've listened to, and I'm hooked. question is this. We're all talking about the big oil plays, the Permian, the Bakken, Scoop and Stack, Eagleford. What do you feel is the future of small stripper fields? And my family homesteaded in the Texas Panhandle to the boom of 1928, and we've been a producer ever since, but it seems that all the big players are moving out and seeking to find the next big thing. This is not only a concern for me as a producer standpoint, but also from a service company as well, as we expanded into acidizing in the late 80s, thanks in advance. So I'll kind of give my answer, and Mark might have something different, but you have to understand that big players and small operators have completely different operating models. You as a small operator can be economical at much less of a cost per barrel than the big guys can. And just because they're moving out doesn't mean that your business is not viable. If anything, that gives you more of an opportunity to scoop up some of the things that they've gotten rid of at a discount, and you should be able to grow your operation that way. That's just kind of my take on it. You know, you got to understand exactly where you play in this space and don't get caught up on trying to think that you need to compete with Chevron because you're not even in the same league. Don't take that the wrong way, but understand that your business model is completely different. Yeah. So just so if the audience doesn't know, a stripper well has nothing to do with people taking their clothes off. A stripper well is a well that's nearing the end of its life. And, and basically it means that there's still a ton of hydrocarbons there. You just can't get them out economically. You can't make money on this well anymore. And they tended for years to just be abandoned, to be plugged and abandoned. And those stripper wells are something that me or Jake or 
or Kobe here could go pick up a couple in his backyard, right? If the finances make sense. The problem with stripper wells is because they're ending the end of their economic life. They're not producing anymore. There's three things, right? And the people in this world always talk about the three P's, pressure, permeability, and paraffin. And And to eliminate any of those problems used to be a lot of money, which like Jake said, somebody like Chevron could come in and do uh, artificial gas lift or water lift to an entire field, could ash it wash, could hot oil or whatever to get rid of the paraffin, could try some you know, bioorganisms, that sort of stuff. But a small three-man shop can't afford to do all that. I think there's some new technologies out there around enhanced oil recovery, and I don't know exactly what they are, but I think a lot of this new uh, EOR, enhanced oil recovery technology, I think some of those actually could be applied to stripper wells. I think some of them are portable or smaller. They're cost-effective. So, Colby, if I was you... One thing is to go to listen to episode five of the Oil & Gas Startups podcast. We have the guys from Mad McKenzie on there, and they have an enzyme that is specifically for EOR. And it's like magic. It's absolutely amazing. So we're actually about to go up to Oklahoma and run their enzyme down each one of our wells to increase production. So it's worth looking at. There you go, Kobe. For another reason to reach out to Jake, get his enzymes. So if Jake and Colin don't ruin their field, don't ruin their reservoir with the enzymes, <laughs> and it actually, it actually works, they t- took all the risk for you, Kobe. Just wait, just wait until Jake and Colin are finished, and if it works, <laughs> then reach out to them. All right, next question is from Eddie. He's a land tech at Crescent Point Energy. He writes, I've been hearing quite a lot of news about uh, blockchain recently and how it may affect the landman profession. There was a recent article about this in Landman Magazine. How do you believe blockchain will be affecting landman going forward? And what are some good resources to stay ahead of the coming changes? I'm definitely not a land expert. I know a lot of people who are. I do understand how blockchain can be applied to a lot of different things in this space. I don't see blockchain coming in and determining, I guess, you know, kind of running title or anything like that. But what I could see it coming in is possibly coming in and replacing county records. Uh, I also think we could replace lease records and ownership records and, you know, who owns what working interest and all that kind of stuff. But there's some challenges along with that. You know, the, with the nature of blockchain is that you're creating an immutable ledger, which is great. But at the same time, you know, what if there are some errors and having to go in and actually fork a blockchain kind of runs the whole point of having a blockchain in the first place. But I think you could have some great smart contracts around this that could potentially be generated and automate a lot of stuff. I don't think it would necessarily like completely disrupt the space, but I think it would make the entire process extremely efficient. I think the uh, second challenge other than the immutable nature of blockchain is that standardization. You'd have to find some kind of standardization between like every single county courthouse or every single county, I guess, in say like Texas, but then not just in Texas, if you wanted to do it outside of Texas, nationwide. And I think that would be kind of going back to our talk with PPDM and how that's not necessarily considered a standard model. They've been at this for like 20 years or something. You know, you kind of just imagine the same thing with blockchain on a much larger scale. So you're getting more parties to have to agree to, to something that would for it to work optimally would need to be some kind of standard in place. So I'm bullish on blockchain as a technology. We're still kind of hesitant to kind of see how it's actually going to be applied in oil and gas. And there's a lot of different use cases. I think supply chain is a low hanging fruit. I think what the guys at data gumbo are doing is going to be really revolutionary. They may or may not be on the oil and gas startup podcast here soon in the next few weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. So I think just the smart contract part is something that's applicable today in 2018 using blockchain. And we already know companies that are doing that. I do agree with you until the courthouse records are digitalized right now, though, most of them are still on paper, right? And somebody has to go drive the courthouse and look it up. But until that happens, it's hard to layer, think about layering on another layer of technology. Although 
in the world of land, blockchain would be very useful if we had standardizations. But it's the biggest thing I see in oil and gas with uh, blockchain is the transparency and the security. So, you know, when upstream companies form partnerships with midstream companies, or there's a joint venture, or there's production sharing, or there's royalties, or any of that sort of stuff, by using blockchain smart contracts, it's crystal clear who did what, who owned what, where everything is, and all this stuff is done in real time, and that the security is provided by a bunch of different ledgers instead of being centralized in one place. So I think there's some application there. And then, of course, if you listen to the show for any length of time, you know Jake and I have already talked about how the majors are already stepping in with blockchain with using contracts and are using blockchain in their contracts, which tells you that there's something really there. But I agree with you, Jake. There's other parts of the puzzle have to come together before this technology becomes more used than it is today. All right, next question is from Duty. He is the founder and CEO of uh, SinSecure. His question is, I was trying to understand the relationship between liquid LPG and vapor LPG in closed containers under different temperatures and pressures, and is it negligible compared to the volume of the tank and the gas inside? Is it possible to find tabulation that's showing the different levels of liquid LPG and vapor LPG at different temperatures and pressures in closed tanks? I'm going to pass that one <laughs> off to you, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think I'm going to let you answer that one, Jake. So the short answer is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> So I left this question in here, and Duty, thanks for reaching out and asking us. And, and honestly, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate that you think that Jake and I have enough intelligence or knowledge around this that we can answer your question. We we can't. Neither one of us can. I know there's a difference. I know LPG basically is a liquid because it's freezing cold and kept under pressure. But going any further than that, I, I just can't. It's it's not our expertise. But I will do this, though. If anybody in our audience can answer this and would like to have a deep discussion with Duty. Let us know. We'll make the connection. This is, I'm sure there's some people in our audience that this is like one of their favorite things to talk about and nobody wants to listen to them. And so now we found you a friend that you can talk about that may actually help his business. If you can talk about the differences between liquid LPG and vapor LPG in a closed container under different temperatures and pressures, let us know. All right. Last question is from Sean. He's a student. He writes, love the podcast, guys. I'm currently applying for law schools. Looking to do something in the oil and gas law. Do you know any publications or literature that are focusing on this legal field? I'm from Boston, so I'm not really around the industry. So I often, often have trouble finding resources. Thanks. Actually, one of our new podcasts, Sean, is the Oil and Gas Legal Risk Podcast. Sarah's doing that one. That one should be launched, hopefully, knock wood, the end of this month. So I'll make sure that you get a notification when that one goes out. It'll be under, if you're looking for it, just go to oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. That's the home of all the podcasts and see when it gets launched. But you should definitely listen to that one and tell all your friends about it. There are some oil and gas legal publications out there. The IBA has one. There's a journal and law review has one. IEL has one. The state of Texas, I think, has an energy section with a bunch of public so that's some places for you to go look. Other than that, I think really you might want to reach out to some of the uh, legal organizations that are in oil and gas or at touch oil and gas, and they would probably be able to point you much more useful stuff than me and Jake can. But yeah, there's some out there. And like I said, we have an oil and gas legal risk podcast coming out really soon. So stay tuned. Cool. And that about wraps up the questions for today. So if you wrote in, Thank you guys so much. You guys make this show. If you have any questions, please write in for next month's First Friday Q&A, and we will hopefully answer them as long as they're not too technical. <laughs> or pawn them off on somebody else yeah. <laughs> if we can't answer them. Yeah. So if you'd like to win one of these really cool offshore bags, you know the deal. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We'll give away one lucky winner a week. See official sites for rules and details. And Jake, is our rig count 1158? One one five O.
Five oh, okay, because you typed in the show notes one one five eight. Well, no, it made me sound like I knew what I was talking about. I was just reading the show notes. Events on deck. We have our traditional Houston super happy hour. It's the last Tuesday of every month at the Cannon. This one's no different. So it's Tuesday, October thirtieth, folks. You need to go. It's really cool. It sells out every month. I will tell you this much. Don't reach out to me the day before or to Jake or to Paige or to Colin by the day before and say, oh, I forgot to register. Can you get me in? Because no, we can't. Once it sells out, it sells out. The money goes for good cause. We support Red M, which is a charity that fights human sex trafficking. Part of our proceeds go to that. Big shout out to all our sponsors for making it happen. And I cannot remember what the spotlight is for this one, but it's always interesting and fun to have somebody smart come up and talk to the room. If you'd like to find out about this event and more, I have a monthly oil and gas newsletter goes out. The link will be in the show notes. Just go sign up for it. We don't spam you ever. And oh, the new thing, if you can go to Oil and Gas Global Network website and go to the events page, and it has a calendar with all of the events that we're doing. Right now, it's just one. By next year, it's probably about 30. And then if you'd like Jake and I to come speak to your sales and marketing kickoff, bring the podcast to your conference, your university, any of that sort of stuff, we've been doing a whole bunch of that stuff and we love doing it. Reach out to me and Jake and we'd be happy to share the details. Jake already mentioned about First Friday Q&A. Give us a question. Please no more questions about the differences between liquid and, and, and vapor LNG. But if you really have something like that, you can ask us. And if we can't answer it, we'll find somebody in our audience that can. When you're at the, our website, give us your email address, sign up. We won't spam you. Join the LinkedIn group. And I'm about finished, Jake. You ready to get out of here? Yep, let's do it. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.